0: My name is Sanjeev Gupta, and this is Socialism in the Time of Corona. In this podcast, I'm talking with people with deep experience in socialist and left politics, especially in the U.S. Our overarching question is, during this pandemic, how might we not only defend whatever gains we've made to this point, but actually advance them? In 1985, Cornel West, chair of the Afro-American Commission in the Democratic Socialists of America, DSA, posed the following questions. What is the relationship between the struggle against racism and socialist theory and practice in the United States? Why should people of color active in anti-racist movements take democratic socialism seriously? And how can American socialists today learn from inadequate attempts by socialists in the past to understand the complexity of racism? West's questions remain alive for socialists in the US today, perhaps especially for those of us active in the DSA. My guests for this episode Melissa de la Rosa, and David Roddy of Sacramento DSA have been tracing the sharp debates on these questions throughout the organization's history. Michael Harrington wrote in 1974, quote, the overwhelming majority of the society, black and white, is dispossessed. Blacks are the most dispossessed of all. So there is a majority of the society, black and white, which has a vital self-interest in the redistribution of wealth. By contrast, Manning Maribel, who in 1977 stated that, quote, a racial analysis by itself was insufficient in understanding the contradictions at the heart of a capitalist society, wrote in 1980 that, quote again, A grassroots alternative to the ideology and politics of liberalism must be rooted within the historical reality of blackness, within the perspective of the black working class, the unemployed, and the oppressed. Maribel left the DSA in 1985. In their multi-part series, A People of Colors History of DSA, Alyssa De La Rosa and David Roddy present a detailed account of the role played by socialists of color in the DSA from the very beginning. They have conducted a significant amount of research, combing through archives and interviewing surviving figures from the entire period of DSA's existence. The result is more compelling and complete than DSA's official history of itself posted on its website. You'll find this episode of the podcast most useful as a supplement to their work rather than as a standalone conversation, and I've linked everything in the show notes. As a reminder, uh, this podcast is not officially connected with DSA in any way. Uh, All views expressed here are those of the participants only and not of the organization. Alyssa De La Rosa has been a member of Sacramento DSA since 2016 and a co-founder of the chapter's Racial Solidarity Committee. David Roddy has been a member of Sacramento DSA since 2009, uh, was a former member of DSA's National Political Committee uh, and also Western Regional YDSA Organizer. He also uh, hosts a leftist podcast uh, that's linked in the show notes. I talked with them in August. I first wanted to ask you just uh, the history of the piece. um, What got you to, uh, you know, work on it in the first place?
1: Yeah, so there was a couple reasons why we started working on the piece to begin with. Um, So just kind of drag, excuse me, (laughs) Backtracking to about 2018, um, I think one of the things that we were hearing a lot um, like coming from outside organizations and just from people generally was that DSA is a white male-dominated organization, and that's very true, Um, but as a person of color myself, um, it was always really felt like an erasure, you know, to hear that, especially if being part of the organization and putting so much work into it and knowing other folks, other POC folks in our chapter here in Sacramento, as well, as well as other places, putting so much work into DSA, it felt very much like we didn't exist, right? And so oh. our stories weren't being centered. And kind of on the same side of that is that we didn't have a clear conception of what the history of POC in the organization was. And so um, I think, you know, a major impetus for at least my personal um, desire to pursue this project was really to learn more about the folks that had come before us and that had put so much work into building up this organization that, you know, potentially we weren't really honoring their legacy. And so this was a way to do that. Um, And sort of on the same token of that, like on the same side is that um, we would be able to learn from what POC in the past have done um, to potentially illuminate a path for us forward. And so um, that was really important for for me personally. And I know for a lot of folks that read it is also a really strong component why they do. Um, And also like for context in DSA around 2018, uh, we had um, a lot of debates going on. One of which was coming out of um, like East Coast, Philly DSA, about. Um, whether or not that um, like the Abolish ICE campaign should be supported. And so I think the argument that they had out there was that um, kind of this universal demands versus particularist demands Mm. argument. And I think that was really strong around 2018. And I think it kind of snowballed potentially into a little bit of the Bernie campaign and like how the rationale behind this whole idea of universal versus particularist demands, um, I think was almost like a veiled way of um, really talking about we shouldn't center um, like ethnicity or immigrant status or race in um, our broad-based working class mm. working demands. And so it felt very veiled. Um, and so I think you know obviously back then it was not not even a good rationale. I mean that during that time you had the movement for Black lives had already started. Um, And I think we can see that today, that this idea that there has to be some sort of versus, you know, universal versus particularist, I think is like, you know, really damaging for our organizing, but also just isn't true. You know, we see right now the movement for Black Lives is becoming um, very center stage and also um, you have labor picking it up as well. And so I think um, just that argument in itself felt very... um, like we have to do this. We have to talk about like POC in the organization. We have to really um, go back to our roots and, and really investigate what happened in the past. And I think that was kind of the feedback we got from one of our first interviewees. We um, we met up with Bill Fletcher Jr. And that was really one of the key components we took away from from talking with him was that um, to chart a better path forward, we had to learn about the past.
2: Oh, oh, right. And as, um, as an organization in which we are all to various extents influenced by the works of Karl Marx, I think it's very important that we do historicize the moment. And so there was this sort of infamous New Republic piece that came out in the winter of 2018 about DSA being a white organization, but it kind of came out in this sort of vacuum, like DSA just sort of existed and, and that's right. not true. Like DSA has been around for 30 years and the reasons are 40 years
1: it's 40 years yeah Um,
2: (laughs) and so the the reasons why there's such a preponderance of white men in the organization is really a legacy of a deeper history and some of that's reflective you know why there aren't more black and brown elders within the organization what kind of made the organization white to begin with and and so I think that's what I was really interested in looking at is sort of the historical context in which DSA arose and how that context influences the composition and organizing of DSA today.
1: Yeah, and I think that's super important when we really consider about, um, you know, the stats coming out of DSA in the sense that most folks joined after 2016. And so the there isn't really a framework or like a context for most folks um, who are in the org right now. And mm. so I think, you know, it it's something really helpful to consider that, yeah, this organization has been around for 40 years and a lot of stuff went down. So yeah, that's a good point, David.
0: Well, thank you both. I, I you know, I, I might actually sort of cycle forward to the ending of the, the story here and then we can come back and fill in the the middle. So, you know, if your motivation was to sort of go back and excavate Uh, these questions in the context of the organization's history so that, you know, you, you could sort of, uh, you know, as, as you were saying, Alyssa um, uh, sort of not feel left out uh, in, you know, now. Um, So what has that done for you? Like what, what specifically are you and, and you also, David, um, can you take from this that addresses your initial motivations in getting started?
1: Um, I think one of the biggest takeaways, um, or just one of the biggest honors, on honestly, is just talking to the folks that were involved in the organization. Mm. So we've we've met up back before COVID. We're able to meet up um, in person with a lot of these folks to talk with them about their struggle. And I think the big takeaway for me personally has been. Um, And this is something that I think is true for a lot of folks is that there are definitely ebbs and flows to our lives as organizers and activists and so. um, You know, sometimes we can be discouraged by like the political context or even what's going on in our own lives, Um, but the reassuring thing is that some of the folks that we had talked to at least initially about why they left DSA have come back to DSA, and so I think. For me, that's the biggest takeaway. What about you, David?
2: Broadly, I think talking to people who have been in the movement for the last, like, since the 1960s and 1970s, is really—they really have a lot of answers that we might not find self-evident within the current moment. But you know, a lot of these struggles that D.C. is going through, in regards particularly to um, race. Are very very old. They go back to the founding of the organization, and people have lived from the founding of the organization until now, and are paying attention to DSA, and it's very useful to hear what they have to say. And so I found that generally, um, there we should have a more of an emphasis in our organizing on specifically um, anti-racist work or solidarity work with organizations that. Are fighting for things that particularly affect black, black, and brown communities, and another thing is a strong internationalist component. And so DSA right now um, we have a lot of great links with Europe, and we're kind of starting to have some links with Latin America. But back when, say like the Hispanic um, commission. commission was strong, they they had very strong links with activists from Nicaragua and El Salvador. And, and then the, then they also made connections with, you know, like, people who are opposing apartheid in South Africa. And so I think that we really need to take on what um, is no longer popular to be called like a third worldist perspective, but, but a perspective that is centering not only the lives of people of color in the United States right now, but also placing them within a broader context of the sort of history of colonialism and imperialism that, which we're embedded in
1: yeah
0: hmm. you know so one of the uh, you know just to validate uh some of the things you said up front about your motivation so i definitely fit that profile i joined uh, after 2016 not really knowing a whole lot of the uh, about the organization and certainly not knowing about the history of uh Uh, you know, this whole like amazing Maribel versus Harrington, if you want to put it that way, kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, going back right to the start. And so, um, so, you know, when I found your piece, for me, it was just like, wow, you know, you guys have done all this. You've actually talked to some of these people and gone through some of the primary sources. And it was uh, kind of a revelation for me. And um, so, so, yeah, I just, first of all, I, actually just wanted to thank you for doing it. (laughs) Um, But also, in, you know, one of the things that really struck me was that, you know, like the way you, uh, when, you know, you have these uh, amazing uh, sort of quotes from some of the things Maribel wrote um, uh, before DSA was was formed, and then as he left the organization, um, that in some ways, I mean, have we have we actually gotten past that or better than that in some way? like it struck me as some of it is still I would describe it sort of in the same terms now in terms of the problems we are dealing with, but what's what's your sense?
1: I would say that that's I, I kind of share that as well. I think there's a lot of similarities of of that kind of struggle that's still going on.
2: Well, if we look at Sacramento, where we're from, there is sort of a revolving door of black Marxists who can come in and then they see the organization as being very white dominated and having all of the what we now call microaggressions, but I guess sort of cultural assumptions of white people that are rooted in oppression. Um and, and they leave. And so I think that a very similar dynamic happened at the birth of DSA and Maribel really put a lot of effort into trying to create a multiracial organization but was met with such resistance that those people left. And so, I mean, we're not finished with the piece. We're waiting till September to interview Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, who wrote uh, people's history, uh, an indigenous people's history of the United States. And her most recent book was Loaded, which is like a social history of the Second Amendment. And we've had a few conversations with her because she lives in California. And so she was involved initially in um, DSA brought in by Maribel and they had this um magazine they put out they put out two copies of it called third world socialists where they really tried to root dsa's international politics within anti-colonial um anti-neocolonial movements that were happening at the time and after the whole jackson fiasco they just left you know and mm. so they've just been kind of watching dsa from afar and some folks have rejoined that we've talked to but but yeah. yeah, it's been a real revolving door. Yeah, um,
1: and I mean, I guess not all hope is lost in the sense that, like, I think in some ways, DSA has learned its lesson. Like, for instance, obviously, in endorsing Bernie and not, yeah. <laughs> I mean, pledging not to endorse anybody else. I think that's a positive development that, you know, isn't necessarily similar to what happened in the Mondale versus Jackson endorsement, Um well,
2: in a sense, though, I mean, labor was much stronger. Organized labor was much stronger in the early 1980s than it is now. And so there was more of an impetus to back who big labor was backing in the early 1980s, whereas today, you know, labor's very scattered all over the place. We have like change to win versus the AFL-CIO split. And it's just kind of a mess. And so there really isn't a strong AFL-CIO backed candidate that DSA might have a debate around, like Joe Biden's backed by most labor unions because they're backing the safe candidate, which is what they did in the 1980s. But in the 1980s, they had much more power. And so Harrington's kind of idea of creating a part of the sort of independent organization of this from the Democratic Party that could influence the Democratic Party um, would naturally sort of follow the labor official done because they wanted to build the equivalent of a labor party. Whereas today, you know, we don't really have that question. So there is a little bit less weight.
0: Right. Yeah, I I thought that was really uh, interesting uh, that, you know, we, I mean, on the one hand, we correctly sort of, uh, you know, bemoan the sort of the, the weakening of organized uh, labor over the last 20 or 30 years. And yet, in this, in this sense, I mean, it it really seemed to hold back the, uh, you know, the, I guess, movement broadly defined, uh, certainly, you know, in the J- uh, Jackson-Mondale sort of uh, time, um, and um, so in some ways, maybe it's just as well that, you know, that uh, it's it's not going to play that kind of role. Um, uh which was which is a little different from what i mean one might normally think about organized labor
1: yeah and i think um we see some of that kind of um reoccurring actually currently especially with like medicare for all i know all the big unions came out against it recently they didn't um support it um at the most recent um
2: democratic Uh, Democratic National Convention Convention
1: yeah Yeah. and so I think we do see that and I think David's right in the sense that um potentially doesn't have as much leverage on DSA anymore as it did in the past and that you're correct as well in the sense that it's um you know not labor is not necessarily um upholding like the progressive line in a lot of these debates
2: and at the same time and I mean we do need a strong labor movement to really do anything progressive in the United States, because ultimately, politically, we can't get anything done unless we have an organized working class base. And so I think that a lot of the debates going around DSA about rank and file strategy versus a more flexible one are super relevant, and I don't have the answer to it, but how we can incorporate ourselves within the labor movement is one of the most vital questions facing the organization
0: yeah yeah for for sure uh so okay so so that's organized labor uh maybe going back to the because this is also on my mind a lot these days uh you know in the context of the uh, anti-police protests uh, what what can and should dsa be doing more of to so you know you have people showing up at a meeting and then not coming back. Um, uh, so there's that you know the individual experience, and then there's the politics of what the organization is sort of how it's visible or what it's vocal about. What what should be doing? What should we be doing more of?
2: Well, it's. I mean, technically, I shouldn't answer this. I guess as a white person, and considering my positionality, etc. But based off my understanding of history, I think that developing and really encouraging the Afro Socialist and people of color caucus is perhaps one of the most vital things we can be doing to create a truly working class organization. And by that, I mean an organization that represents um, the huge diversity of workers of the United States. I mean the working class in California or in Sacramento, you know, certainly doesn't reflect a white majority. Um, And so within DSA to have a white majority, it's not really reflecting the working class. And so if we go back to, say, the early 20th century and the African Blood Brotherhood entering the Communist Party, well, the Communist Party kind of took on a much more pro-Black self-determination line because of that influence. And then I was really struck a few years ago I went to, um, I was kind of being courted by CCDS back in like uh, 2012 when none of these organizations really had more than a few thousand to a few hundred people. And I had been to DSA conferences and it was mostly old and white and majority kind of Jewish. She's old sort of labor Zionist types.
1: Yeah. DSA. I There was a really funny story. Someone related to us that like at one of these DSA conventions when they were just mostly older and white, hmm. they had, um, I think it was, Gloria, it was Steinem. Gloria Steinem. They invited her as like a keynote speaker and the entire room was asleep, <laughs> like <laughs> literally asleep. Um, and she said she was never going to go back and do it again. So. <laughs> Um, But continue, David. (laughs) Um, And so
2: the Committees of Correspondence for Democracy and Socialism is a split from the Communist Party that was composed primarily of Black members of the Communist Party, including famously Angela Davis, who were kind of sick of the, sick of this Communist Party acting in sort of like this class first racial blind way. And so they split. And then, um, and so I went to their conference and all of a sudden I was surrounded by like old black people and it was just an entirely different set of sort of socialist elders. And it really came down to something that happened, you know, 20 or 30 years prior. And so I think right now we really need to be building spaces where black and brown people of color um, can really organize amongst themselves instead of just being sort of having the risk of being the tokenized one black person in a room full of white people. And I think history plays that out. And so I think that having the Afro-Socialist Caucus is very important and having the commissions historically, the commissions have acted as sort of a left pole within DSA to support the Jesse Jackson campaign, to support de anti-colonial movements or sort of like national liberation movements like the Sandinistas, which DSA wouldn't have supported without the commissions. And so having a space where people of color can organize amongst themselves and then influence DSA, I think is a large answer. But again, you know, I'm
1: white. I I definitely think that's part of it. I think it's a huge component of it. And I think our latest piece where we do talk a lot about Cornell West's kind of strategy Mm -hmm. moving forward um, does talk a lot about being involved in those campaigns as coalition partners really not shying away from that and building real trust through struggle is one of his um i think main takeaways for his um, strategic advice for dsa and i think i do feel a little bit more hopeful than i have in the past about it um i do feel like the afro-socialist caucus is like a really really great development that's come about in the last couple years and i'm really grateful that they're around
0: yeah, I am too. And I wanted to ask you guys about, you know, so I didn't know DSA had all these commissions, um, uh, you know, including separate ones for uh, like uh, Latino and black uh, sort of, uh, uh, you know, members. Um, how do you think the caucus compares with those? Like, is it, you know, is it playing a similar role or is it, is it a different kind of formation?
2: I'll say that the commissions had a much more from at least from what I can tell political influence on DSA, though I can't really speak to the Afro-Socialist Caucus, but Alyssa.
1: Yeah, I mean, I do think they have a political um, influence on DSA. Um, I think notably during the Bernie Sanders campaign, one of the things Afro-Socialist Caucus did was um, demand that um, reparations be considered and or um, part of a platform before DSA endorsed Bernie and it became kind of like a big thing where people were circulating this petition and Bernie Sanders did end up saying something about reparations so I think that they do have uh, a political influence I feel like in comparison to the commission system I do feel like it's a little bit more um, disparate like in the sense that it's not um, you know back in the day they would have been focused on um, very particular campaigns right. um, versus now where I think it's a little bit more um, fluid in the sense that they have more freedom to to um, propose things as opposed to back then. Mm. I'm not sure about the funding structure. I know that the commissions back in the day had um, legitimate like funding sources and that they would um, ask for those at the convention. I'm not really sure about the um, Afro-Socialist Caucus and what kind of funding mechanism they have, but they are uh, you know, officially recognizes the only caucus
0: in in TSA, right. right? And there's certainly funding for you know uh, the like the gathering in New Orleans, uh, you know, last right. year and and so on. Um, uh, you know, one of the impressive things about the commissions, as I read uh, your your pieces, was uh, that um, uh, you know they they actually acknowledged. The diff, like, you know, so there was a separate, you know, commission for blacks in DSA and Latino, like, it, it you know, it sort of this recognition that, in fact, there are multiple sort of um, uh, interests. Um, uh, and, um, you know, the caucus is sort of, you know, united among all people of color, which has its own strength. Um Uh, but certainly seems like a major difference, you know, uh, that, that we're just trying to keep the caucus together in that way.
1: Hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I wanted to ask you about uh, sort of one set of like, I, I mean, I, I think it's legitimate to call these like touchy issues, no matter how and when one talks about them. But, um, uh. And I was actually around during the Jackson campaign, and I remember the whole, uh, you know, the set of incidents you you describe. Um, right. Um, how, you know, so the same question about how much of this is carried over, or are we are we, uh, you know, are we able to have we moved beyond this in at least in the DSA section of. Of the left, um, and I let people read your piece to you know fi- uh, get the details, but yeah,
2: I think so. Um, so there used to be a strong, what, what's called called left or labor Zionist component within DSA, where people were very strong supporters of Israel, and so during the New American and then when, so DSA for those who don't know came out of a merger between the New American Movement which was sort of um, strung together from old members of the Communist Party USA and also met former members of the Students for Democratic Society. And on the other hand, there was the Democratic Socialist Organizing Committee, which was sort of founded and organized by Michael Harrington. And that came out of the Socialist Party USA, which was very much a tie to labor officialdom and also had a strong history of but left Zionism
1: and anti-communism like, and
2: anti-communism. Yeah. And, and so anti-communism kind of bled into opposition, to decolonial protests that were protests, I'm sorry, revolutions that were sort of founded by the Soviet union. Whereas the new American movement coming out of the communist party and the new student left, which was very, you know, influenced by the Vietnam war was very, jeez, what was I just talking about, Alyssa? I'm sorry.
1: It was very radical in the sense that um they um, supported Palestine. right. And so Palestine
2: mm-hmm. was viewed within the context of these this broader anti-colonial movement. And when the new from people I've talked to, like as soon as the New American movement entered DSA, the question of whether or not DSA supports Palestine is kind of squashed. And there's actually this guy, Corbin Seaver, who at the time was married to Desmond Tutu's daughter, who was a mm-hmm. member of DSA. And he wrote, In one of the earliest editions of the Democratic Left, you know, if we want to attract more people of color, we have to have a stronger pro-Palestinian profile. And Maribel and West also said these things, so they were just shot down. But at the 2016 convention, um, we voted to support the boycott uh, and divestment and sanctions movement. And the few strong labor Zionists within DSA had left. And so I don't really think that Mm. is a problem in DSC anymore. And broadly, this new generation of young Jewish activists, from my understanding, tend to be much more critical of Israel than their parents or grandparents.
0: Yeah,
1: I think um, it was funny because we were at that convention, I think it was 2017, actually. Um, And that was kind of like, we like to call it like the revenge of Nam because they not only did uh, we vote to support the um bds movement but also um left the socialist international which was um like a one of those sticking points apparently when nam and yeah. Soc merged and so yeah 2017 was very much like you know nam strikes back <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> um uh yeah no i mean that's that's definitely my impression i you know i um the more general sort of uh, uh you know uh sort of black Jewish sort of uh tension which I mean it's problematic to sort of frame it that way, but just you know, for the for the sake of simplicity here. Um um so so you know there's the Israel component of it and then there's the anti-Semitism component of it. And certainly right. my sense is that both of those are not as much of an issue now. But I wanted to ask, you know, you guys have been in the organization longer, plus you wrote this piece. So, yeah.
2: Well, Uh. I think you see a lot of hot takes still on the internet about um, black anti-Semitism. And one thing we didn't really approach in the piece was the relationship between Jackson and the Nation of Islam, which you got a lot of flack for, but it was just sort of outside of our like DSA specific focus. And of the Nation of Islam and has a history of its leaders making anti-Semitic remarks. Yeah. And I, I it's my impression that there is still anti-Semitic um, viewpoints within parts of the Black activist community. And there certainly is what we now call like anti-Blackness within sectors of the Jewish community. And it's still, I mean, it's still part of the sort of fabric of so social events of the United States, whether or not it's part of the fabric of dSA, I'm not convinced,
1: yeah, I would say largely it's been squashed within dsa yeah. um, but that's just kind of my my take on it, at least just in the conversations and um the things that chapters and um the convention ultimately have shown,
0: yeah, yeah um that's that's my sort of rough impression as well um. One thing I've been wondering about, and, and, you know, from comrades in uh, California, Texas, um, uh, you know, trying to get a feel for is how how well are we doing at uh, kind of um, uh, operating in, uh, you know, in Spanish and not just in English? And I mean, during recruitment, or while we are, you know, out there in particular protests, and then certainly inside when people, uh, you know, enter the organization, um, what's our capacity to, to be kind of current, you know, with, uh, with where the U.S. is.
1: Oh, I think we're really far behind where we should be. I know one of the positive developments at this past convention in two thousand nineteen was that. Um, I, I think it was a resolution for having a DSA website in Spanish. And I believe, I still don't think that that's online yet. Um, And obviously it's a huge undertaking to um, translate everything, but it's definitely very possible within a year to get a website up. Um, And so I think nationally we're a lot more alert, yet still just lagging behind in terms of the actual finished product Uh, here in california i would say that the same thing that we're all very aware
0: Hmm. Um, but
1: i think we need to do better and take more meaningful steps Um, here in sacramento one of the things that we're working on is a local chapter convention and um, one of the resolutions proposed is to um, require that any printed materials that are printed in english also be printed in spanish Uh and so I mean, it's just a way to force folks to realize that, look, you know, we're living in a, in a place where 40% of people speak Spanish at home. And if you don't even have materials that they could read on their own, which, you know, you go out door knocking and, you know, at least half the time you're not, you're not talking to somebody, you're leaving a pamphlet. If they can't even read it, you know, what's the point of going to their door? Um, so I think you know, there needs to be way more progress on the end. Um, do you have any, anything to add on that, David? No,
2: I mean, I think that that's true. And especially if we want to start sort of targeting working class neighborhoods as places where we want to recruit in some like Sacramento, the largest working class neighborhoods um, speak Spanish. And so if you can't get past that hurdle, then you really you're really just going to reproduce the same sort of demographic within the organization. And so the communist party in the early 20th century and the socialist party before them had, you know, whole separate language. um, I forget the word for it. It's equivalent of a kind of a commission though, where they would have people who spoke Finnish people, even people who spoke Irish, like, you know, Mm. just um, separate organizations for like language organizations and, and that really helped facilitate bringing in a lot of immigrants from um, Eastern and southern Europe into the socialist and Communist Party and they actually formed the left of the Socialist Party, then left that then split um, and formed the Communist Party. And so I think that having being being bilingual at least with the most commonly spoken language amongst workers um, in the United States right now is super critical.
1: Super critical. Um, Some of the things, you know, bright spots are that I know Sacramento and L.A. both hosted um, canvassing opportunities for Bernie in Spanish. Mm. Um, So it's not it's definitely not like all hope is lost. Um, I do think that there are people willing to put in the work and it's just more of we need more broad based organizational support. If National could do translations that all chapters could print, that would be a huge thing, Mm. super huge. So um, not all hope is lost, but definitely so much work needs to be done on that end.
0: Hmm. Um, uh, let me ask you guys one more question, like, uh, you know, for the podcast, and then I'll stop recording. And um, I, I do have uh, questions for you about the, the language uh, issue. Um, uh, what's What's been the... Seen in Sacramento uh, you know both uh, you know sort of in the early phase of the the protests over the summer and and how has it evolved now uh, you know are are there still protests ongoing? you know what's the momentum like um, uh, in terms of the police the anti police protests?
1: I think the momentum in terms of the anti-police movement is growing, but I do think it's changing in a way that, um, is really exciting. So here in Sacramento, we did have a lot of, um, protests, especially during that first week back in March, I believe, um, uh, in mean, April.
2: You yeah, have a national guard. That was wild. Yeah, we had the that.
1: national guard here. Um, oh. that was intense and very, very scary, at mm. least for me personally, but, um, I think uh, here locally that's really morphed into um, some campaigns that are really exciting, um, campaigns for defunding the police. So looking at um, taking these protests and making them more targeted towards the structural elements of what's holding up um, the police in terms of their funding. And so um, here they've just really morphed into campaigns to look at where the CARES funding the uh, or the COVID response funding and looking at budgetary moves that we can make to really kind of strike at um, the police's power in the city. Um, I know that organizations in town have been working to get um, the sheriff election here in town put on the November ballot so that more folks have the ability and attention to participate in it versus mm those off-year election years where most voters are going to be skewed toward um, conservative and Republican. So those are some positive developments.
2: Yeah, we have a DSA elected city councilwoman. Well, she was elected by a large coalition, but she's also a DSA member mm-hmm. um, who's proposing a people's budget that um, is looking at defunding um, the police. And I think what's so exciting about it is, you know, defund the police is sort of implicitly anti neoliberalism because like the growth of the militarized police is really the growth of the need to police communities as the welfare state gets shipped away right and so by the sort of people's budget we're saying no we we want that welfare state back we want the police to have less power and we want to have more power than our communities and so i think that it's really an opportunity to to challenge the sort of assumptions that Have driven capitalist development in the cities, especially since the recession. And it's really wonderful to have somebody who's a socialist in city council pushing for that.
1: Yeah, and I think um, at least here locally, we we have um, the capitalist stronghold mayor here um, scared because in response to our councilwoman's election and to the work that she's doing, the mayor's proposing a strong mayor. type system here in Sacramento so that they would have veto power over council members. And so uh, I think we're seeing a very much, a very, very real reaction to this really, really promising and growing movement um, on the ground um, for um, defunding the police and for more of a welfare um, based state and funding.
2: Yeah. And so you really have sort of the, I mean, the last time we had a strong mirror was during the um, gilded age and we had this really strong mirror that businesses could sort of talk with directly instead of having to go through more popularly elected, like, you know, district by district channels, like a city, like a council system. And so I think really we're seeing again, like this move of capitalist interest to try to increase their executive power And and so it's really classical playing out in a way that I feel is much more naked. Mm. And I think that's good because the contradictions of our society were so for so long, um, under neoliberalism, like class war was something that maybe people said is a bad thing, but it it was still ongoing, but nobody really talked about it as such. But now I think it's very clear that we're when we're talking about democratizing our communities and we're talking about defunding the police, and we're talking about expanding the welfare state. And the, we're talking to people who are in opposition to us, it's very clear that there is a different a difference of interest within the communities and the contradictions of capitalist society are clear, and that's a good place for socialists to be in.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: Let's restate Cornel West's question from the beginning. How can American socialists today learn from inadequate attempts by socialists in the past to understand the complexity of racism? Well, we can start by actually learning about these earlier attempts, and Rosa and Roddy's work is an excellent place to start. In fact, I've ended up reading it not as a people of colors history of DSA, uh, as they've titled it, uh, but as a history of DSA. Uh, that history is simply not complete without Maribel and the other figures in Rosa and Roddy's piece. Future episodes will uh, continue uh, on these themes uh, with current members of DSA's Afro-Socialists and Socialists of Colour caucus. Join us in thinking aloud about how our day-to-day work during corona can cohere into a battle plan for democratic socialism after it.